And here we go. This is Rob Liefeld. I'm Rob Liefeld. You are listening to Rob Observations, my crazy, nutty, comic book-themed podcast. You know what? Comic books covers everything nowadays. I come home. I can watch a new episode of What If, which is... uh, I did an entire podcast on that last year, guys. What if I called it the secret Marvel playbook? Because almost all of the what ifs that they put forth in this book that they launched in 1977, which was, you know, existed to give alternate realities to popular Marvel storylines, has become, in essence, a absolutely a playbook for not just Marvel publishing, but the MCU as well. And now they've got it as a show on. Disney Plus, so I can I can click on that, I can watch that, I can go to HBO Max, I can watch The Titans, which is really now, more than anything, a Batman-themed show, which is a completely different subject, but it is focused very heavily uh, on the Gotham elements in Season 3, but so, so I can click on What If, I can click on uh, uh, new episodes of, of Titans Season 3, and I'm just excited there's a Titans show, period. You know, when it's third season, that's great. And then get an advertisement for Doom Patrol season three, which is coming up shortly after. So, and 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 during all this, I can go on my social medias and get uh, reminders that Shang-Chi is, Shang-Chi is still in theaters and The Eternals is coming out any minute and in a week that Venom and Carnage will meet on screen for the first time 30 years after they made their um, comic book uh debut it had had comic book conflict when carnage came into his own and would become another foil for both venom and spider-man in the pages of spider-man as brought to you by uh david michelini mark begley and uh that entire you know uh uh uh, triumvirate of spider-man venom and carnage except i guess we're not getting we're not supposed to get the spider-man version yet maybe as we've heard there's a a credit scene and literally that Venom 2 is is now the most the only movie I know that is being advertised uh uh for a a, a post credit scene in the in the uh, teasers in the uh ads that you're seeing on YouTube the ads you're seeing on Twitter on Facebook on Instagram and a credit scene that has to be a post credit scene that can't be missed I mean literally it's kind of weird I said the other day, it's interesting. I'm going to leave it at interesting. Interesting is a non-threatening word. And it kind of covers everything it needs to cover on this. It's just, wow. Every angle I look at it from, like, you're, you're, you've got this legendary throwdown between two giant, the most favorite symbiotes who are super popular in their own right. Venom has been outselling Spider-Man for the last two years. In regards of his popularity, I would say Venom has been more popular across the board in the culture uh, for maybe the last two or three years. And you go, no, life, what are you talking about? Let me take you all the way back to the very first uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man movie that was spinning off of his incredible appearances, you know, in the Marvel Universe. He was now an MCU character via his, you know, introduction in Civil War. Um the 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 PG thirteen Disney produced Marvel produced MCU stamped uh, Michael Keaton as the Vulture uh, you know you had Iron Man tech now you had you had a really huge you know Tony Stark 
presence. That movie did less than the R-rated Deadpool in the uh, did a year before. Domestic and abroad, uh, Deadpool was a bigger uh, 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 movie, and, you're, and and so now the apologists to me we go well that was the sixth Spider-Man movie. No, it was supposed to be a huge byproduct of Tom Holland now being Kevin Feige's Spider-Man. Now, Homecoming, absolutely, look up the numbers, domestically um, fell far shorter than I think they had anticipated. And then uh, Far From Home was immediately the first Marvel Universe in the echo of what had happened with Endgame. And that gave that a substantial boost. And then finally, I think, got what they expected they were going to get on Far From Home. Don't, I mean, on Homecoming. Don't, like, don't waste time throwing crap my way. I only speak facts. People, they don't like when you speak facts because the facts don't always line up with the the way that they want to um, want to remember things. But again, I think everybody was a little taken aback by the fact that that first Tom Holland, um, and again, we're not, look, you guys know, I like stuff. I like fringe stuff. I, I like, I like stuff that is, uh, that is not blockbuster worthy material. But what I'm going back and saying here is that Venom has been, um, more popular, uh, than, than Spider-Man in recent years. And certainly in that window of time that I'm talking about, Venom had kind of a really, a resurgence as a visual, as a toy, as a pop. That's what I mean by a visual, something that is on your shelf that does not talk back. Again, I have all of these Deadpool statues that don't talk back to me. They don't come with word balloons. They don't have a voice. They just look cool. He has a gun. He has a sword. He has his um, faithful, you know, visuals, uh, uh, pouches. He has his red and black costume that he's had since 1998. That's the the stuff that, that, that you go, you know, there's a whole lot of uh, Venom material that was being sold in the last five years that is just cool Venom action figures, Venom pop figures, Venom, you know, uh, 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 you know, little, little mini figures. It's, um, he really took, and that Tom Hardy Venom film, I think that's 2019, uh, that was a big deal. And, uh, yeah, domestically, uh, Spider-Man, Homecoming, 2017, you know, now the the MCU Spider-Man made $334 million. So I can only uh, use the Deadpool, I have to now backtrack because I was irresponsible in saying uh, only domestically because Deadpool, R rating, I go to the R rating because kid you not, it does, my own kids were not able to see Deadpool, My, my high school kid, uh, was not able to get in to see it. They, they carted him. They called out his group of friends for being too young. That R rating still gets enforced, whether there's this fantasy that it doesn't, but it, it does, and it may, maybe it doesn't consistently, but it does. Deadpool in 2016, a year earlier, did 363 with a restrictive rating. With an with a PG-13 Tony Stark uh, MCU rollout, uh, Spider-Man did 334 in the United States. He's, a, he's an American character. He's a United States character. That number, I'm sure, was was shorter than what they wanted. And so then, uh, tell you, tell you, you know, what a difference, you know, coming out, out of Endgame. Now it goes to 390. 
and it adds actually 100 million more, almost 150 million more worldwide too. And suddenly Spider-Man Fire From Home did a billion dollars. Um, but so did so did Venom. I mean, or, or Venom, Venom domestically uh, uh, did 800... D- D- Venom from Sony did the same as Spider-Man Homecoming did when it was released. Again, I'm reading these numbers off of Box Office Mojo, so... Uh, don't think that I'm I, I'm literally looking down at a readout. Uh, 642 million international dollars went to Venom. Venom did 213 million dollars domestically. Venom had a worldwide cum of 856. It let's let's stay with this. Venom bested Deadpool worldwide internationally because China alone, China alone gave. Uh, Venom, a uh, uh, like, d- d- like an insane amount of scratch. I mean, we we are we are, we are looking at um, just an insane amount of of <laughs> China on its own gave two hundred and seventy million dollars to Venom. That that number, that number. I love this. I can get lost in the numbers. Forgive me right now at getting lost in the numbers. Venom received just shy of $300 million. I, I, I am looking at it. China, $270 million. It opened in China bigger than it did in the United States. It opened bigger. Um, so, 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 but domestically, Venom did $213 million. They've now added carnage. I just, my whole thing is I don't see why they need Tom Holland or him to use him to interact with Spider-Man. Venom is ridiculously popular. As a comic book, he has been ridiculously popular. This all underscores that we got a Marvel movie recently. We've got DC streaming shows. We've got Marvel streaming shows. We've got that entire back catalog on Disney+. Plus. But, you know, we've got the Eternals coming out. In the immediate future, in in the next week, we have Venom. You know? Venom! Um, and, And Venom, I want to eat... I want to eat some heads. Okay. That movie was endlessly entertaining. It was not exactly what I was looking to encounter when I went and saw it, but I was entertained and entertaining matters. Entertaining uh, is, if, if you can entertain me, I'm all in, I'm on board. So Venom and Carnage are going to throw down in a week. And that's a big deal. And I think Carnage is cool. I just started, I just did a couple covers with Carnage. So I'm, I'm more familiar with Carnage than I have in the past. I'd, I'd already done, I haven't done a lot of Venom stuff either. He's a great character, another great visual. Carnage, super fun to draw. Venom, super fun to draw. And again, uh, those first appearances are worth a lot of scratch. The collector's market has not slowed down a bit in, in the pre-pandemic through now the pandemic. And now as we exit and go into a post-pandemic world, um, these first appearances of Carnage and Venom are still huge deals. The bottom line is we're living in a comic book world. It's 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 so much of what we consume. Batman Day, fifteen Batman titles we discussed on a recent podcast being released in one single day um, to commemorate Batman Day. Okay, um, so the reason that I use Deadpool also you uh, because you're associated with him. You no, know, I have a lot of inside data on it, but it's an R-rated film. I can go back and do the Logan. Uh, uh, comps as well, uh, but but the Logan didn't do as well in terms of with an R rated. It it was the best of the of the Wolverine films, but Deadpool is is um the best of the R rated, you know, uh, 
comic book films. I got to be honest, Suicide Squad, really, the Suicide Squad, the R-rated Suicide Squad. Um, I was shocked. I was really shocked at how it, um, that it did not perform as well, even given that it was on streaming. Look, Black Widow was on streaming as well. So you can't make that argument, okay? The argument falls apart. Black Widow was on streaming and in theaters the same week that Suicide, in the same manner that Suicide Squad was released on streaming and on screens because I thoroughly enjoyed Suicide Squad. I thought it was the best version of Harley Quinn that we had gotten. I, I loved King Shark. I loved Bloodshot. I thought Rick Flagg was at an all-time best. I am such a James Gunn super fan and uh, loved it. Uh, just was shocked that it did not connect with the masses. And many people have said they, the first thing that, that I see apologists do is run with that R rating. But that R rating isn't as, um, let's see, for a lack of better term, stinky poo-poo. R rating is not as stinky poo-poo as it used to be. Because again, Logan made some serious scratch outperforming its previous PG-13 by having that elusive R rating. And then Deadpool with its R rating exceeded all expectations. Deadpool's budget was affected by its R rating. That the, the original Deadpool, because you know of its R rating, uh, was 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 uh, was limited. Look, I'm going to tell you something. Amazon Prime is uh, now right now showing a movie that I grew up on called Beastmaster, and Beastmaster starred stars. The movie features Mark Singer and Tanya Roberts. Um, it is a really fun movie that played on HBO. Um, uh, almost on a nonstop loop, uh, literally I, at one point in like, I, th I feel like 1983, 1984 Beastmaster was on, uh, nonstop daily, at least, at least once or twice a day on, on, especially on the weekends, uh, they, 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 they let Beastmaster, um, you know, uh, uh, just, just roar. That thing was always on air. It's, it's a great fantasy, um, barbarian movie. I'm, I'm not sure that high definition benefited it. I saw that it was on Amazon Prime. I revisited it. I had a great time. Mark Singer is still maybe has the best male physique ever to show up on screen. Um, you know, Mark Singer's face is, is a little more mature. He's always kind of, it's like his face is 40 and his body is 19. Um, and, 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 but from the, I mean, the, this, the physique on this guy, it's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, whoa, swollen muscles. It's that like ultimate swimmers physique, like carved, huge carved pecs, massive abs, broad shoulders, but he's long. His waist is long. His legs are long. So he is this amazing physique. And even as a kid, you're like, oh my gosh, who's got the better body in this movie? Mark Singer or Tanya Roberts? And let's be honest, Tanya Roberts, it's beautiful. Rest in peace, Tanya Roberts, from Charlie's Angels to Beastmaster to Sheena to that 70s show. She entertained an entire generation. She was funny. She was witty. She was beautiful. She had a great sparkling personality. I loved her in the last season of Charlie's Angels. Loved her um, in, in, in that 70s shows. Those were kind of the bookends of her TV career. But in the middle, she was a Bond girl. Uh, she was Sheena, the, you know, kind of a, a female, for those of you who don't know, the, the, the easy version is a female Tarzan uh, type, uh, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And then she was obviously the female lead in Beastmaster. 
Why am I bringing up Beastmaster? Because I listened to a commentary track of the director. Because why not? Like, hey, come on, man. I want to I wanna check out what this guy is, uh, is, has got to say about this film. And the thing that just shocked the crap out of me is that uh is is that they 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 speak to um the uh the fact that of all the people that beastmaster impales um uh during uh d- during you know his 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 adventures and he is slaughtering people right and left they they said that there's never any blood there's never any blood on on the sword. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is, I, I'm like, oh, I, I, I really never had, had considered that before, but the shock of the matter is, and this is, this is before PG 13. Okay. Um, beast, they're like, we were really shooting for that PG rating. Um, and I'm like PG rating. I distinctly know that Tanya Roberts is, is, is nude in this movie. Um, but uh but but the 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 film is um is 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 absolutely a, a PG movie you, you 1982 PG rating Tanya Roberts her bare breasts spend a significant amount of time on screen which is automatically nowadays i mean you that, that's not in a PG13 Marvel, Disney movies are PG, Star Wars movies are PG. Um Ray is not topless, Black Widow is not topless. Um you know, I mean the the the, the Tanya Roberts her first introduction in Beastmaster is that she is topless. So you are getting a partial nudity. Um and you can go, well Mark Singer is topless the whole movie. He is. It is the best argument for um kind of male uh uh the, the male being as equally exploited physically during a movie as any female in the film. But it is the blood on the swords that kept them from getting that R rating. We didn't want the R rating, so we limited the blood on the swords. He and, and the director talks about the fact that the that, that that you know people would be like, hey, why isn't there blood on those swords? And and again, having rewatched it this week, reliving my childhood, reliving the movie that I saw multiple times as a kid. And and, and if you are of the 80s generation, you snorted Beastmaster. You consumed it. It was like your own personal drug. And um, you lit up and you smoked a lot of Beastmaster. And Beastmaster was fun. It's got John Amos. It's got um. It's got Rip Torn as a chew the scenery background guy. The HD does not um do some of the cheesy makeup effects. They need my buddy Bill Corso to come in and redo all the uh, build. Bill did all the makeup on uh. I mean he does he he's Harrison Ford's makeup guy on Indiana Jones on Star Wars. He's um on the Terminator, recent Terminator films, he does Schwarzenegger. He, 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 he designed the look for Linda Hamilton and he is, uh, you know, Wade Wilson. He designed the look of Wade Wilson on screen alongside Ryan Reynolds. He gave us, uh, he, he is the, the visual, uh, makeup production design director. And that, and, and the reason Ryan looks so great as Wade Wilson is because of Brian. Uh, I, I'm because of Bill Corso, because of Bill Corso's amazing uh, wizardry. And so when I was watching Beastmaster, I'm seeing some obvious latex masks, and they're kind of scary. Um, some of these female these these female wizards that have these, um, I guess you know, a couple of them were gymnasts 
um, underneath, but the faces of the female wizards are always meant to shock you when they turned around. They're these deformed, almost aged-looking women. Their, their faces are half-melted off. But uh, it's the blood on the swords that, that, that kept them from going R, and they wanted to stay in that PG range. So think of it. In 1982, you can have your heroine be topless in the lake, um, coming out of the lake. Um, several uh, villagers are, are being killed, and they are running, women are coming running towards you as the um as the pillagers of the village are tearing their tops off and so but that does not that was not enough to get you an r rating in 1982 it is uh but blood on the sword because he is again uh he is uh beastmaster is 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 slicing and dicing there's a body count he he is he that sword gets a workout he impales people above him, to the side of him, below him, slicing them right and left. But there is no blood ever because that would have meant in our ratings. So again, our ratings have changed, but our ratings mean something. They have always meant something. And in the case of Deadpool, it affected the budget of Deadpool, that it would have been a bigger budget had it been PG-13 going back to Beastmaster. You know, it was the most expensive movie that director had ever had directed and he wanted kids to be able to see it. And they got that with a PG rating. Again, before PG-13, which was brought back by, brought brought around by Sir Steven, Steven Spielberg and the Temple of Doom uh, controversy or controversy that occurred uh, in 1984. So, comic books, comic book movies, comic book everything. Recently, so a lot we do a lot of talk about the Bronze Age of comics on this podcast with good reason. But 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 is is it nostalgia? I felt this is you know what I get asked all the time. So. So I ordered a book. It's an expensive book. It came in this weekend. It's called The Bronze Age. Surprise, um, Marvel Comics, The Bronze Age, 1970 to 1980. It is curated. Each story is curated by the editor-in-chief at the time, Roy Thomas, uh, who, most of that time. He, he exited that towards the late 80s. Has a preface, has a, has a, uh, a, a preface written by Chris Claremont, a foreword by... Roy Thomas, and then he curated every story in there. And then it comes with this really amazing uh, facsimile edition of Giant Size X-Men number one that looks exactly the quality of paper, the newsprint. It is it is like it came out of a time machine, but it is in, in fact a reproduction. Uh, and it comes specially wrapped, and it's in a nice... The entire uh, edition is in this handsome uh, slipcase case. Uh, cover and 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 it comes from the folio society f-o-l-i-o eric stevenson partner in image comics publisher of image comics cued me onto the folio society when they were doing their silver age editions which also comes with a facsimile edition of the fantastic four these are expensive they're going to cost you 300 dollars. okay i'm not gonna i don't want to uh uh not advertise that this is expensive and send you down a chase there you go what are you talking about i can't afford this it is a high-end item high-end very expensive item i decided because of my obsession i wanted to have it we have discussed all manner of topics and I have told you that I believe the Bronze Age alone, on just the introduction of characters that it, it, that, 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 it, that, it, uh, that it released into the consciousness, kind of wins in, in, in regards to like a showdown of the ages. I mean, with Wolverine alone, his Hulk appearance, then implementing him into the X-Men and the X-Men with Colossus, Storm, Banshee. Then you can go to Punisher. I mean, a vigilante and anti-hero that became this giant breakout star. Um, I can continue down that path. And, and go more into the Guardian, the Vindicator, Alpha Flight, all this other stuff that we'll discuss at length some other time. But the Bronze Age had just so many characters. Black Cat, 
uh, hobgoblin. Um, but here's the deal, Roy, Roy Thomas, and this is why I really believe it's, it's, we forget how seminal, and Chris Claremont talks about how the 70s is when things got kind of serious and kind of weird at the same time. And, and the books took on a, a slightly darker tone. Again, the Bronze Age is uh, denoted by the death, it, it, the, the fairly common agreed upon, the consensus is, it begins with the death of Peter Parker's girlfriend, Gwen Stacy. When Green Goblin murders her, he throws her to her death. And Spider-Man is unable to save her. And, and that is a darkness that that character had not experienced before. So, so people say that's when comic books got mature. It ends in '86 with Watchmen and Dark Knight. That is, so it's so it's '70 to uh, 1971, roughly. Some people say it's Amazing Spider-Man '96, but it's like it's like in this zone. The 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 blurred lines are ni- are 1969 to 1986. Some of the harder lines are '71, '72 to 1986. Dark Knight, Watchmen, seen are seen as the end of the Bronze Age because then we enter an all-new Dark Age because they took their comic books to an all-new darkest period ever. And that is kind of the agreed-upon parameters of the Bronze Age and everything that happened within it, and there's a lot. But, and, and, and one of our big subjects today, the big mystery we're going to unravel, uh, uh, is, is, is a mystery, will be a mystery to you that you will likely have not known occurred, and it, 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 it goes to the heart of publishing, production, um, it's it's a very entertaining story. I I know that you would want to hear it. Um, I'm not sure it's ever been repeated, but uh, but this is the, the, the this is again uh, in the heart of the the Bronze Age, and and the, <laughs> the funny uh, thing uh, about the Bronze Age is we overlook and we did an entire podcast on this early on in our first month of podcasts. We did diversity in comics and what the age of the 70s meant to characters of color, people of color. And the 70s is what gave you Shang-Chi and Iron Fist and the Sons of Tiger and White Tiger. And and White Tiger is a Latino martial artist that came from the Sons of Tiger, which was a Latino and Asian and a Caucasian. Okay. Um, And, 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 uh, and, and these, these characters, Marvel was broadening and they were diversifying, but there's a really interesting paragraph that Roy Thomas uh, put forth in this Bronze Age collection. And uh, and he says that, uh, you know, that in 1971, Stan uh, told Archie Goodwin, who was a key editor, writer, long since passed, really dynamic editor and writer, in, 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 but wore both hats ex- extremely well, I, I, I actually think his writing is as good as his editing, and he was a hell of an editor. Started the Epics Comics line, um, edited a little bit of everything over time, wrote some outstanding, an outstanding stretch of Star Wars. Stan Lee called them in and announced that they needed to devote an entire title. This is Roy Thomas's writing I am reading to you. Uh, I'll just read it. In late 1971, Stan called in writer Archie Goodwin, myself, and perhaps, his memory's a little fuzzy, John Romita, into his office and announced the time had come for Marvel to devote an entire title to an African-American superhero. The, and in quotes, pure African Black Panther character had been partly sidelined by the existence of a real-life militant organization of the same name. These are Roy's words. That is not my words. He is writing 
been sidelined. Now the Black Panthers were getting a lot of press and the FBI, FBI was investigating them and they were um, uh, very uh, prominent during this time. When I was growing up in the early 70s, the Black Panthers were getting a lot of airtime and they were a, a very, uh, they were prominent, they were bold, um, they were unafraid. And by their very existence, I think they drew a lot of attention and eventually some investigations, whether they were warranted or not. This is going, I am telling you how it was back then, not a judgment of it now. I am just telling you what was going on during this time, which makes sense why Black Panther was not getting his own title at this time because of the controversy, controversy surrounding Black Panther. And Stan admits that this is why they had sidelined him. They didn't want to pull the Falcon away from Captain America because they really loved that dynamic. Word for word, it says, and the Falcon works so well as Captain America's partner. Stan didn't want to disturb that dynamic. Something new was needed after the success of the film Shaft had made a breakthrough across the board with all audiences, including whites. So they began to brainwash. What they came up with was Luke Cage, Hero for Hire. Um, Archie Goodwin would write it, and artists George Tuska and Billy Graham would shepherd it into the marketplace. That's a huge, huge deal. Again, I, I deal with this much more in depth in my Diversity in Comics episode, but Marvel gave comic books its first solo black superhero African-American spotlight character. And I love Luke Cage. I told you, why did white little Robbie Liefeld consume Black Goliath, Luke Cage, Black Lightning, and uh, and, and Black Panther? Because eventually they, they returned Black Panther to form. I'm going to tell you, because they were cool. And, and all we chase is cool. You know, um, I love basketball. I love basketball players. I loved Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I later, you know, had posters of Magic Johnson all over my Walls right now. If you walk through a hallway in my house, you—I've got um, posters of Kobe Bryant and Magic Johnson and LeBron James when he was a Cleveland Cavalier. I bought a painting that is outstanding from his early years as a Cleveland Cavalier. We have Steph Curry. Um, I am a huge fan of basketball, football, sports, and I never—I was not raised to see color. Uh, that was not really something that was ever of concern maybe even surprisingly so in the Baptist upbringing that I had. But I thought that Luke Cage was a fantastic visual. Um, I loved his yellow shirt. I loved his silver tiara. I loved that he wore a chain around his belt. I loved that he had super strength and he bashed in people right and left through walls. And um, and later again, when they teamed him with Iron Fist and you had your Hong Kong, your, 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 your martial arts hero, not Hong Kong, martial arts because Danny Rand is from Kunlun, but you had a martial arts character alongside this hero of Harlem. And that was very exciting. And so you go to the 70s, the Bronze Age is the birth of Luke Cage, the Punisher, Wolverine, the new X-Men, Guardian, Alpha Flight, Black Cat. Uh, the list can go on and on and on. The Huntress over at DC Comics. Um, the, 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 and, and that's just scratching the surface. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, uh, I, I bought books like Bloodstone and Omega the Unknown and all manner, like the aforementioned Black Goliath, Black Lightning. Um, on Super Friends in the 70s, you got Black Vulcan, which was kind of a weird version of Black Lightning, but they, I don't know if they didn't want to pay the license. But that is, um, again, it just just a, a, a reminder of the importance of that time historically and what it meant and the doors that it opened. But today's great mystery is, can you believe that Marvel shipped a multi-part storyline 
that Marvel shipped a multi-part crossover storyline. And yes, prepare for it. It is one of my favorites that has ever been published. I have been reluctant to speak of it till now because, <laughs> because uh, I, I, I thought, man, people think this is cheesy when the main bad guy is a character they're not terribly familiar with. And his name is Atuma, A-T-T-U-M-A. And the object of so much of this uh, 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 th- this battle is the serpent crown, which Marvel could use. The serpent crown was cool. Um, it, 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 it provided tremendous power to whoever wore it, and it was kind of a born in the Conan age, the Hyborian age, per Marvel's history, and had been fought over by different wizards and sorcerers during time. But this crossover not only involved a tuma, it's not a tuma. Okay, of course I hear that. Uh, Atuma is an early, early, early Marvel, um, Marvel, uh, Fantastic Four, uh, uh, villain. And, um, he is kind of an under, he is a counter to Prince Namor, Submariner, uh, always warring for the crown and the power and the control of Atlantis. And he has always been a tremendous visual, incredible headdresses, um, helmets, armor, uh, a three-bladed sword. You like Shatterstar and his double-bladed sword. Atuma has a triple-blade sword that totally blew my mind as a kid. So, but he is not the only um, uh, uh, villain driving this story. There is also uh, 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 my good buddy, Doctor Doom. Okay, now this this. Uh, this crossover is going to tickle you for a number of reasons. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you right now that, uh, that, that this, this Dr. Doom was a traditionally a fantastic four heavyweight, but he really, um, carried tremendous, tremendous, uh, uh, importance and threw all of his weight around and that of his nation, Latveria, as he, uh, as he engaged in 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 this particular uh, this 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 particular multi-issue crossover, but what if I told you that the second part of this story shipped three weeks before the first part? Um, make no doubt that is in fact the case, and this came to my notice um, not too terribly long ago. Uh, again, via the Twitter handle spinner rack or rack spinner when you search again like so many people they have a name and they have a handle the the name of the account is rack spinner the the handle is called the spinner rack and uh you know the uh the 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 funny part is that i saw this come up like on the spinner rack they listed uh because they always tell you what's coming out what came out that day, multiple days, uh, services, mostly the Bronze Age. Um, Super Villain Team-Up, number nine, is the second part of a four-part crossover. Uh, and and it, uh, it has been reprinted. You can get a nice trade paperback or a hardcover version of this. They, they reprinted it as Avengers, the private war of Dr. Doom again, because he plays such a big part of it, but it also has this, um, other fan. So two giant fantastic four villains, Atuma, it's not Atuma, 
and Doctor Doom are, and then Submariner. And there's a new villain called Tyrak, who is kind of this giant, badass Atlantean warrior that serves under Atuma. But the private war of Doctor Doom, um, uh, trade paperback, and the um, private war of Doctor Doom uh, hardcover all give you the entirety of this. They give you all the parts. I own original pages from this. Um, they're hard to get. Um, there's one collector that has like more of these. Hello, Robert Frey. You are um, uh, uh, an object of my envy. He has so many pages from this. It meant that much to him too. Guys of this age, let me tell you something. From about 1976, the baton was passed from 75 to 77. And this entire podcast was launched on the back of 1975's Avengers 141, the launch of the Squadron Supreme epic uh, counter-Earth crossover. And that also involved the Serpent Crown. Uh, the Squadron Supreme, the Avengers, George Perez taking over as regular artist. Um, that, 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 that is kind of the sweet spot. There's a Kang the Conqueror story that I've covered in my entire episode devoted to Kang. It's my favorite Kang Avengers battle when he lures Thor and Moondragon and uh, Hawkeye to the Wild West where they battle Kang the Conqueror alongside Marvel's Western heroes. Um, I cover all of this between the first podcast that launched um, this entire series, Season 1, Episode 1, through, which talks about the echoes and my fascination with, hey, this is Marvel's Justice League. They're not even trying to hide it. That's Aquaman. That's Black Canary. That's Green Arrow. That's Superman. That's Batman. You know, it, it, that's that's Green Lantern. It's crazy. It blew my mind as a kid because in 1975, when I am buying that comic, I am seven years old. I will turn eight years old shortly after, but these are the, the, the these become my obsession for a reason and they're very well done. And um, at, and during that same year-long Squadron Supreme, Thor and Moondragon and Hawkeye are with Marvel's Western heroes battling Kang. So the entire Kang the Conqueror episode that is available in my podcast, because I I, I continue to do villain spotlights. There, it's been a while since the last one, um, but we've definitely done you know Doctor Doom and we've done Kang, and uh, we've touched on Agatha Harkness in the heart of the Wandavision craziness, but. Uh, the, the Avengers was the flagship title. It had more love uh, than the Fantastic Four did at the time, and the X-Men were finding their way. They were still a bi-monthly book. And when the X-Men took the mantle, it took the mantle away from the Avengers. The Avengers had an amazing... I would say the Avengers literally had a five-year run. It's from 150 to 200. 50 issues of the Avengers are all worth checking out. They are fantastic. They will boast mostly some of the, the the best art available in comics at the time by a tag team of either George Perez or John Byrne, two of the giant stars you've heard me mention so often. But George, but John Byrne takes over in the last month of 1977. He takes over the X-Men. And that's when the X-Men starts to pull away and becomes the focus for every Marvel fan of that age. And the irony is that by the middle of my 8th grade junior high year, John Byrne has left the X-Men and that run is over. He, you know, what starts in my fifth, sixth grade year ends in my eighth grade year. It is that, you know, transformative. It was three years that rocked comic books. And even people who work at comic books right at, at Marvel right now, like a Tom Brevoort or a C.B. Cebulski, will attest to the absolute continuing 
power that that um, John Byrne run has. In fact, John Byrne's art from the X-Men is reasserting itself in a recent auction, the Heritage Auction. John's X-Men pages closed for um, $108,000 for a multi-panel page, not a splash, multi-panel interior interior page from X-Men 112. And and then the uh, first appearance of Sabretooth in Iron Fist went for $90,000 and earlier at a separate auction. $73,000 is the first appearance of Vindicator uh, battling uh, 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 Wolverine in his first appearance in the X-Men. But the interesting thing is the John Byrne page that went for $108,000. There's a, it's a medium shot that takes up most of the, 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 the page. Uh, yeah, most of the page. And the medium shot has all the X-Men and in the center, maybe two and a half inches tall as Magneto. Wolverine's on there. He's kind of knocked over, kind of find, fi- finding his uh, finding his uh, his feet and, and rising up. And uh, Nightcrawler's crouched. You know, everybody they're they're all about two, maybe two inches tall. But the entire shot gives you kind of is, is pulled back to show you the lava coming down the walls. And then there's a again five more panels underneath there. That page, as in representing, I, you know, all of the X-Men in one panel at one time, from head to toe or from knee up, like the crouched characters of Nightcrawler and Wolverine, the way they're depicted. That went for $108,000. There's nothing special happening on that page other than there's a lot of the X-Men depicted, and it's hard to get them all on the page. It went for 58,000 more than a very similar page by Jim Lee in the same auction. And Jim as as a as as Jim is one generation's version of John Byrne. And um as the most exciting X-Men artist ever. But to uh, those of us who was there, John Byrne will always wear that crown, but now J- Jim's page similar, a superior shot of Wolverine standing head to toe, but again Cyclops Gambit uh Rogue Storm, all the X-Men are, are another 3 quarters of the page is depicted by them standing together, just like on John Burns, it's three, a three-quarter kind of panel. And uh, Jim's went for fifty. John Burns went for one hundred eight thousand. Uh, other pages from Jim's X-Men issues, there was a bunch in the issue. We're going in the thirty thousand dollar range. The Vindicator fighting Wolverine, and it's not even the best page in that fight, went for seventy-three thousand dollars. Sabretooth standing in the back of a truck went for 90000 John Byrne has come roaring back in recent weeks to assert that he is, in fact, a, a, a kind of the king of the X, the most prominent. And I am telling you, when John Byrne's covers go up to auction, if Days of Future Past, if X-Men 140 fun, 141 goes up to auction, that is a $3 million cover. Uh, I think the average price on a John Byrne cover is a million bucks now. Dave Cockrum, uh, more. Uh, Giant Size X-Men number one, is that $4 million? Is that $5 million? You know, what is that? These are big numbers. These covers are now booking for giant prices. Comic books, um, a, 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 a nine. Uh, X-Men number one went for 800 No, one for, I'm sorry. Got a little too excited there. Went for one sixty, dollars $160,000. Um, Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy, 
three million bucks. These prices are going through the roof. Collectibles, um, artwork, uh, uh, but 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 for an interior, a random, semi meaningless, other than there's a lot of characters on the page, X Men book went for a hundred X Men page by John Byrne and Terry Austin went for a hundred and eight thousand. This reinforces again. John had a huge roar back. His prices are fifty thousand above his nearest competitor on an interior page to an interior page. This guy is crushing it. He is crushing it because a generation knows exactly how important he was and it pulled away. But this crossover, Dr. Doom, the private, you know, again, marketed in trade form as the private war of Dr. Doom. And I, I have that. It's, it's a great collection to have, but these issues. So the crossover starts in Avengers 150. Four, okay, called Wind Strikes Atuma. George Perez is the penciler. Pablos Marcos is the inker. Jerry Conway is the writer. It is an exciting tale of the Avengers returning home from a an adventure and um, being attacked by Atuma and Tyrak, T-Y-R-A-K, a giant that smashes into the floor. Captain America, Beast, Scarlet Witch. Uh, he, he, he grabs... Uh, the chest piece on Iron Man's armor and tears it out. He's super, super strength. He's like Superman level strong. He's like nine feet tall. He is he breaks through the wall of the mansion and just busts all of them. Prior to that, Vision is flying over the ocean and is assaulted, is blasted out of the sky by a <clears throat> an Atlantean warship that is headed by Atuma. So Atuma is making his moves. He is making his his um his intentions known and he is um sharing uh you know uh the 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 plans that uh, that he has to subjugate mankind to his rule and and uh and and atuma is explaining um very very clearly how how he is going to have his revenge on submariner and he is going to uh, be triumphant. He is going to be triumphant as he shakes his fist at the Vision. And then Tyrak is employed to destroy the Avengers. At the end of 154, the end of Avengers 154, part one of this, the, the Atlanteans are taking the unconscious Avengers. Beast flees. Beast realizes he is in over his head. He is about to get his ass kicked. And he flees and the Atlanteans mock that he is in fact running away. And so, uh, so, so the, the, uh, you know, again, the funny part of this is that this part that I'm reading to you, this Avengers, uh, 154, uh, is, is, is a comic book that is released per the spinner rack the account that logs in what is selling each and every day. Avengers 154 is released on September 21st, okay? Earth, Wind, and Fire loves the 21st of September, and so do you, and so do I, and, and one of my favorite Avengers comics. This comic I just told you, every panel is a winner. George Perez, Pablos, Marcos were one of my favorite art combination teams. Um, I wish Pablos had followed George and done more work with him on the Titans. He did, like, I think, issue six of the Titans and did some... In, in, in intermediary inking jobs alongside George was mostly a Marvel inker at the time. 
he and George at this point in their career were absolutely gold. They were on par in my mind with a John Byrne, Terry Austin. And again, when you get to see Iron Man, Cap, Beast smash through the uh, the garden uh, window of, of the Avengers Mansion to battle Tyrak, who has just um, beaten Scarlet Witch into submission, and, and, and he catches... Um, Cap shield and then Tyrak takes Cap shield and throttles Iron Man with it and then Iron Man uh, uh, he he rips out Iron Man's chest disruptor and and which is his power pack and, I, and Iron Man's like oh my gosh my, my power pack has just been destroyed and collapses to his feet he uh, uses uh, these um, mists that he sprays out of his chest his armor to subdue Yellow Jacket and Wasp and then Captain America picks up his shield to have a final throwdown with Tyrak and Tyrak completely beats him to a pulp and again like I said Beast then realizes he's in over his head and he flees in order to get help and they gather Iron Man Captain America Scarlet Witch uh, Yellow Jacket and Wasp to carry back to Atuma and they already have vision because they shot him out of the sky when this book starts this issue was released on September 21st. It is the start of the private war of Dr. Doom. However, if you were a kid, and I was, and I did, and I pulled this off the, the, the newsstand, as it, I got Super Villain Team-Up number nine, which has an amazing Gil Kane cover that has Dr. Doom in squat, you know, defensive position, battling against Iron Man, who is blasting him with his repulsor race, Dr. Doom and the fallen Avengers are all, are all around them because they can't seem to buy a break. They keep falling in battle. Yellow Jacket, Scarlet Witch, Captain America, Vision are all struggling to rise as depicted by Gil Kane here. Dr. Doom is saying, surrender Iron Man or die with the others. So be it, Doom, my armor against yours to the death. Let's open Supervillain Team Up number nine and let's really give it, this is the meat and the potatoes of this entire endeavor. This is why this has so much of my fancy and so much of my favor. And it's like when we secretly find out exactly how ridiculously talented some of the people that we admire are. And uh, and, and, and Supervillain Team-Up, Supervillain Team-Up 9 opens and says, No, Pilgrims, you have not missed an issue of Supervillain Team-Up. Let me tell you, let me, the splash page is a Tuma looking over a map of the United States and behind him is uh is is the Avengers with collars around their neck ha- collar harnesses gold collars very large collars around Iron Man's neck Captain America's neck Scarlet Witch's neck the Vision's neck Atuma is on board his sub surrounded by Atlanteans that that, that warriors that serve him and he says, this is too rich a jest bound by the slave collars that I have forged around their necks. The mighty Avengers speed to the hydro base to confront Submariner at my bidding. And while surface dweller and Atlantean tear each other to pieces, Atuma shall pursue his true goal, the domination of Earth. Boom. Insane laughter rings through the belly of Atuma's command ship. The, the name of the story is Pawns of Atuma. But above all of this, underneath the header of Supervillain Team-Up, it says, no pilgrims, you haven't missed an issue of Supervillain Team-Up and this issue's cover hasn't been stapled onto a copy of the Avengers by mistake. The real Doctor Doom is still on his hydro base while the Submariner and the mysterious Shroud 
face a second doom as shown in our last issue. A lot has happened since last issue. Check out Avengers 154 when you can. That will involve not only our two monarchs of menace, but the mighty Avengers as well. This is a slight side acknowledgement that this story is being told out about or out of order. So again, the Avengers that are subdued in three weeks because that issue is released on September 21st. Supervillain Team-Up was released the first week of, of September, September 7th, per the Spinner Rack account on Twitter um, that you should be following. Rack, Spinner, Spinner Rack. Marvel Supervillain Team-Up shipped the week of September 7th, 1976. Avengers 154 would come out the 21st of September, 1976, three weeks following this shipment. Is that nuts? <laughs> So, the thing that I really dig here, it's written by Bill Mantlo. Jerry Conway had written part one that comes out three weeks after. Bill Mantlo is reading is, is writing part two, which you get before. Jim Shooter, this is the talent I'm talking of. The penciler of this issue, and I have done a deep dive into each and every page. The penciler of supervillain Team-up number nine is Jim Shooter. He is inked by longtime inker Sal Trapiani, but Sal Trapiani is inking figures, faces, storytelling by Jim Shooter. Um, this is a very well-staged, if not completely well-drawn. It's a well-drawn comic. It's not very exciting in its drawing, but the storytelling is great. Jim Shooter penciled an entire comic book. I understand that later... Mark Grunewald would do the same with issues of Hawkeye. But this is the first time I had seen this, and this guy is the editor-in-chief. He would be he would be going on to be the EIC of Marvel Comics during this period. And he is drawing. He came, Jim Shooter, I've covered him several times on this um, podcast. He is famous for initiating the Age of the Crossover, Secret Wars. He wrote it. He helped Mattel design the entire initiative. It went on to becoming becoming the best-selling comic book of its age. Secret Wars was a monster for retailers and fans alike. Uh, he is my personal favorite Avengers writer. He wrote the Korvac Saga, which there is a po- an entire podcast uh, devoted to a villain you have never heard of named Korvac, K-O-R-B-A-C, if you go look for it, Korvac. Jim Shooter wrote uh, several years' worth of Avengers, uh, Count Nefaria, uh, uh, Graviton, the best Ultron stories I've ever read. And this, he drew. He drew this issue of Supervillain Team-Up. Uh, and it's inked by Sal Trapiani. And in this, part two commences. The Avengers are dispatched to uh, battle Doctor Doom, of which they do. And so it's it's nice subject matter here that Von Doom engages in a throwdown submariner uh, also flies through this issue, very capably drawn. The Avengers break through uh, in in uh, uh, and, and battle Doctor Doom, and uh, d- you know Doctor Doom has a great battle that commences in the middle where he battles Iron Man, um, he battles Captain America, he battles the Vision. Um, again, it's not as exciting as a George Perez or a John Byrne. In my mind, it's a Scratch above a Don Heck job from this same period on par with a George Tuska, 
um, job right around the same level of a Salbisema job that you would have experienced during this time. All drawn by a writer, a writer, a man who he came onto the scene writing Legion of Superheroes as a teenager, mailing in his stories to DC Comics. That is how Jim Shooter comes to prominence. He, in 1976, draws this splash page with the Tuma and the Avengers behind him on the screen is a really good splash page. It, 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 could it be more dramatic? Could a, could an A-list guy take this and make it even better? Yes. But Sal Trepiani was not exactly a, a, a big shot inker or big shot penciler, but he is more than capable, um, in how he inks and finishes. And Sal Trapiani, uh, uh, it, again, it, this isn't Jim being inked by Pablos Marcos, Joe Sinnott, Terry Austin, Joe's, Joe uh, Rubenstein. Um, uh, th- th- this is this is a uh, uh, you know he, he is. If you Google him, it will tell you uh, that he was a inker penciler from active from the 40s through the 60s and ventured just into the top of the 1980s. He is best known as a journeyman inker. Uh, uh, that that is that is what what a Google search of Mr. Sal will show you um, an inking style that 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 somewhat reflected uh, guys like uh, Mike Esposito, uh, very brush heavy. Uh, I'm not sure how much crow quill uh, pen work is 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 in here, but he provides just fine finishes. But again, telling a story. Telling stories, the algebra, it is the geometry of comic books. Laying out pages, gestures, uh, you know, uh, faces, facial um, um, expressions is part of telling your comic book story. And Jim Shooter steps in to draw this, which is awesome. And I'd love to know why. And I never got to ask him why. The next time I see him, I will. But he draws Supervillain Team Up number nine, part two of a multi-part crossover that shipped before the first part by three weeks. So again, I mean, the apology on the splash page in pink giant banner. No, you haven't grabbed the wrong issue of supervillain team up. No, this isn't an, a, a, a cover of the Avengers has not been pasted on this. The skill cane cover is sick. I've always loved it. Iron Man versus doom with the Avengers laying at their feet is a fantastic composition. Great rendering, great drawing. The, 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 the series would then pick up in Avengers 155, which picks up immediately <laughs> after Supervillain Team Up 9, which shipped first, but is part two. The end. Uh, Jim Shooter draws a great panel of Submariner flying towards us in the clouds. We, th- we see the, the face of Atuma and Doctor Doom at the end of Marvel Team Up uh, number nine. Uh, Supervillain Team Up number nine. Submariner confronts a pilot, rips off his cockpit, and says, you know, where is in where is a tuma? And uh, these are um, these are are Latvian ships that are patrolling the Balkans. It says, and uh, Namor realizes he says, by Poseidon's beard, what has he to do with this? Um, and uh, and and he engages to go off to fight Doctor Doom and a tuma. And it says, if the surface world provides Atuma with the weapons he desires, then Atlantis will be the first to fall. And again, uh, when last we see the Avengers, 
in this supervillain team-up, Doctor Doom is standing over the fallen body of Iron Man and the other Avengers that he has felt. We do pivot. Imagine buying, getting this first. And you see Beast in the second to last page. He is coming through the window of the wizard who is at the time, long story, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver's dad. We covered this in the WandaVision Hagatha Harkness episode. That for a period of time, part of their extended original origin is two uh, 1940s crime fighters, Miss America and the Wizard, were masquerading because they were given the children um, from Wondagore Mountain. They were masquerading as Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver's parents. And it was natural. The Wizard, who is a 1940s super speedster, and, and the Quicksilver, a speedster, you know, right below him. It's like, oh, father and son are speedsters. It worked in this 1970s world, in this 1970s concept. But eventually they decided they didn't like it and they pivoted and they've changed it. Magneto was asserted as their true dad and the rest is history. And he, I think even that's been altered since. But for today, the second to last page, page 27, Beast comes through the window to Wizards in the hospital, visited by Wonder Man who has the powers of Superman who was recently reintroduced to continuity here in 1976 via a reawakening of him by a voodoo um, uh, uh, priest named Black Talon in an ep- in an earlier issue of the Avengers. He has the power of Superman. B says, I need you two guys to get your stuff together. The Avengers were defeated by Atuma. I need your help. I have the Quinjet waiting outside. So apparently when Beast ran from the Atlanteans in the first part, which shipped second of this story, he was able to access a Quinjet, fly it outside of this hospital window, Wizard and Wonder Man get in the Quinjet with Beast and they fly away. Submariner then rips the pilot out in the Balkans, uh, the Latverian pilot, and asks about Dr. Doom and Atuma and gets the information and Submariner flies off in a rage. One of the greatest splash pages, if you like superhero comics, if you like Dr. Doom, is Avengers 155. George Perez, in all his power and glory, shows Dr. Doom standing over the fallen Iron Man. And this is when you see how an A-lister handles this, as opposed to a very good job by Jim Shooter, who penciled this scene and how it played out and left it on a cliffhanger. And now George Perez picks it up. So now we're back on track. So two shipped three weeks before part one. Part one... uh, shipped, you know, three weeks later, part two, which surfaced, which was shipped out of order as part one was drawn by who would then go on to be the editor-in-chief and one of the greatest writers at, in, at Marvel Comics in, in what I understand is his only full penciling job. And then we were back to page issues three and four, ship on time. And in this, Doctor Doom really takes control. An entire battle again, breaks out as the Avengers rise to their feet and battle Doom again. Brilliant storytelling artwork by Doc, by uh, George Perez depicting Doctor Doom. Beast and the Wizard and Wonder Man who got picked up in the Jim Shooter Illustrated second part which shipped first supervillain team up number nine are on their way to help and give them assist. And this is all so fun. And, and, and now we're back in order. But imagine if you're a kid, Namor is roaring. Um, to attack Atuma and a base that he set up. Wizard and Beast and Wonder Man uh, beat Namor to the point. Namor shows up, thinks they're working for Atuma, which is where you get a great superhero battle. So Prince Namor battles Wonder Man, who is as strong and as powerful as he is. But Namor is in full rage, so he takes them all on Beast, Wizard, Wonder Man, while Wonder Man is pummeling Atuma. 
and then Atuma, of course, escapes. And then what happens at the end, what all, what always happens in a great team-up? Wonder Man exerts his greater strength and fells, defeats Namor. And at the very end of our story here, Atuma still has his agents dispatched. Remember the callers that, that the Avengers had? And, and Vision is wandering, wandering through the halls of Dr. Doom's hydro base when Dr. Doom corners him. And the, it ends with a standoff between Doom and between Vision. And the Vision's explanation, Atuma's secret plan, and the most climactic battle you've ever seen be here for the private war of Dr. Doom. The Avengers 156, as 155 and 154 have, I did not mention this great covers by Jack Kirby, who created the Avengers. Um, so many of these characters. The cover to 156 is crazy. It's got all of the Avengers uh, kind of attempting to scale a wall. Dr. Doom standing in the window, blasting at all of them. George Perez is gone. Salvia Sema steps in to wrap up the story, of which I don't want to blow for you guys. Um, it's great. Pablos Marcos is on inks. The 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 symmetry of the art is perfect. It looks like it's, it's very much in keeping with... Uh, the art that came before in the George Perez issues 154, 155. 156 is a blast. It wraps his story up and it also again ships. So so three and four, four follows three the way it's supposed to. And it's a cool, cool enough story that has stood the test of time that is so many fans' favorite because you got so much Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom did not battle the Avengers regularly, but he did here. And Submariner is a heavy part of this giant co-star of this story. Um, as is Atuma, Tyrak, they get a re they get a rematch in 156 with Tyrak, and now you see, you know, when Namor and Wonder Man and their great strengths team up to battle this giant Atlantean uh force of nature and, and what they can accomplish against it. What does Dr. Doom want out of this? How does he ultimately manipulate it? How does Atuma uh get get ultimately defeated? Um this is an, an outstanding four-part story. So, again, so much so that Marvel has recently, in 2013, 2012, made the hardcover and the and the softcover edition of this. But this is the Bronze Age at its best. These um, multi-part crossovers, except I am not sure. Because you hear about this period where Marvel was falling behind and they needed extra fill-in issues. And I can tell you, as somebody who would show up and, and and pick up an issue of the Avengers, maybe Avengers 157. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stretching. And it's a, it's a reprint issue. It's an old Jack Kirby job, or it's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's, it's a part, part of a reprint that was common during that period on a whole slew of comic books that Marvel was producing because deadlines were being missed, but books had to ship so that they would set up you know, framing sequences that would take you immediately to a flashback from an earlier tale by Don Heck or Jack Kirby or Warner Roth and then say, come back next month when we continue the saga. But uh, I don't know that they've ever shipped the first part of a story three, issue, three months after the second part of a story. But it happened here and it was drawn by the man who would guide them to, honestly, I, did, I have done an entire episode on Marvel Editor-in-Chiefs, you will never convince me that Jim Shooter is not the best they ever had. Why? He let Frank Miller write and draw Daredevil, a young, largely untested talent. He took the reins off 
a few issues into Daredevil, said, go do your thing, kid. He settled the Chris Claremont-John Byrne feud by bringing Dave Cockrum back to work with Chris Claremont now that X-Men was a phenomenon and Dave could hit his deadlines monthly. He decided he, 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 it was the perfect opportunity to bring back the guy who launched Giant Size X-Men who lost the gig due to deadlines to John Byrne, that he would bring him back and restore the two of them. And there was there was short-lived, I mean, there was a cool, like, Cockrum's coming back, cool. That's how I viewed it, because I bought those Cockrum X-Men, 94, 95, Giant Size X-Men number one. He settled that dispute by bringing Cockrum back to team with Claremont while he took Byrne and turned John Byrne's energy into a five-year run on the Fantastic Four, a launch of Alpha Flight, which was an extension of characters that we belo- that we absolutely adored and loved, and they were beloved from the pages of the X Men. Alpha Flight, Vindicator, Sasquatch, Shaman, Snowbird, Puck. Um, he, he, John, he, he turned John Byrne loose. He gave Walt Simonson Thor, said, "Write and draw it." John Walt Simonson hadn't done a mainstream comic book. He had been doing Star Wars. He had been doing Battlestar Galactica. Jim Shooter said, "Do this." Jim Shooter had a great eye for talent. He had a great instinct for what fans wanted, and he let them have it. He brought Barry Windsor Smith back to ink in secret Herb Trimpey on a Machine Man revival. And they didn't reveal it was Barry, Barry Windsor Smith until right before the book was published. And then Barry Windsor Smith comes back and does years and years of work under the Jim Shooter EIC guidance. Epic Comics creator-owned opportunities launched under Jim Shooter. All the while, Jim Shooter wrote the Korvac Saga which is my favorite Avengers saga ever and gave us the best Ultron stories ever. Um, really, that that Avengers period is just fantastic. He brought us the age of the crossover with Secret Wars. He introduced uh, the Beyonder. That There is just so much that Jim Shooter set into motion. And I'm not even a big Beyonder fan, but Secret Wars 2 happened as a result of that extension. Jim was a visionary guy. He would go on to then launch Valiant Comics and give them all the heat that they needed to become one of the hottest companies in the early 90s before a lot of infighting and misdirection. But uh, Jim Shooter penciled. The second part that shipped first, that's a very capable job. We love guest stars. Dr. Doom battling Iron Man on the cover by Dick Gilkane may be like the winning ticket of the whole thing. But the entire crossover with Dr. Doom battling your favorite Avengers, Cap, Iron Man, Yellow Jacket, Wasp, Beast, Wonder Man. Um, just, just a blast. J- Submariner, just amazing. And Atuma, the underwater Atlantean warlord that always was opposed, you know, was fighting, was, was, you know, always in opposition to Submariner, Prince Namor. Um, it, it just never appeared more grandiose, more fierce, more um, menacing. A great slice, the private war of Dr. Doom. The reason we talked about it is because it shipped, it launched out the gate, out of order. And uh, and would it not be for a Twitter handle called Spinnerack? I'm like, okay, I don't, I, I definitely remember that note in Super Villain Team Up 9. I was more shocked that Jim Shooter was the penciler. Then there's the whole, wait, where is this? Because I, I was buying Avengers Monthly by that time. 141, I was on the Avengers, like, stink on poop. I, I did not miss an issue. 142, 143, 150, 151, 152, 153. You know, what? what? This doesn't make sense. How did the Avengers get from 153 
to wearing collars on the splash page of Supervillain Night. But they kind of tell you, you didn't get the wrong comic. Stay with us. And, 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 and I love the note. I love the note. And this is kind of how cool and how subtle it should be handled. Check out Avengers 154 when you can. Okay? Kind of like, in a couple weeks, this will make all the sense in the world to you. Um, today, this something like this would be covered by all the blogs. By I mean, they would flip out. They would probably pulp, uh, which means destroy the first edition if it was the second part, if it was going to be shipping before the first part, first part and be interpreted as the first edition, they would Marvel and or DC would likely destroy that. I've done multi-part crossovers. I've, I've published them extreme prejudice, extreme sacrifice, extreme destroyer were really fun times at my uh, image comic studio. And that connected many more pieces than this six, seven, uh, team books across three months each individual books and and we all had to make it work and it's fun but it's it's there's a lot of planning and there's a lot of execution and this is one that just didn't quite <laughs> didn't didn't quite um um hit the mark as it as we would say but i gotta be honest it was fun it's fun checking it out it's fun looking it over it's fun studying history and again i can say to you with all authority this happened this shipped out of order and uh, that's really, it's, it's, it's super funny to examine. But again, I don't know that I would have been as enamored by it had Jim Shooter not penciled all 22 pages. Because uh, that is something, that, that's just something cool, man. It's just something cool. Um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the accomplishments of somebody like a Jim Shooter cannot be underscored on any level in regards to, I mean, again, penciling a published comic book is hard. It's hard. It's hard under the best of circumstances. So this is where I thank you for taking this trip. Bronze Age, Luke Cage, Venom, Carnage, Box Office. See, we do it all here. Comic books that shipped out of order. Crossover events that shipped out of order. That is so damn funny. Um, so, so the thing is, uh, I just really thank you that you guys take this time and, 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 and float down the river with me on this stuff. Um, I really appreciate you. And more than anything, I appreciate your reviews. I read them at the end of every show. I'm about to read one right now. You guys leaving reviews, subscribing, leaving five stars, spreading the word of mouth. It matters in the podcast world. It, 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 it is, um, it is essential. Uh, you, this show will be free forever. It is not something that will ever suddenly be on a Patreon um, if it's not free, it'll stop. Okay. I love giving this to you guys for free. It helps our bandwidth and our exposure. When you write those reviews, when you share your enthusiasm, when you subscribe, when you give us five stars, like my good friend, Asso Betsy, A E S O B E T T S Y. Asso Betsy, Aso Betsy from Australia. I am reading you from down under today. This review from Australia. From Melbourne with love, it's also signed B. Sutton. B. Sutton. Just B and then S-U-T-T-O-N. So B. Sutton and, you know, maybe Aesop Betsy is a service via Apple Podcasts. I don't know this. Um, I, I, I named that and I named B. Sutton. B. Sutton, I hope you're listening. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed receiving it. Rob Rob, Rob, okay? 
Again, it says, from Melbourne with love. Rob, 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 I have to let you know, I love your podcast. Your observations have entertained me throughout Melbourne's harsh but needed COVID-19 lockdowns. Your recommendations for comic runs and creators have helped me make more precise decisions with my purchasing, thus saving me lots of money, which is always good. Your few brief mentions of the Twilight episode to serve man encouraged me to go back and watch that classic show, helping fill in a few more lockdown hours. Just wow. This podcast has kept me sane and entertained in a nightmare-long lockdown. Thank you, mate. I got called a mate. Thank you, mate. Hopefully, you'll be able to fly to Melbourne Con soon. Because I got shit I need you to sign. Best B. Sutton. S-U-T-T-O-N. Thank you, B. Sutton. Thank you for, for that generous, those five stars from Melbourne with love. This is why I do it. You tickled me. You touched me with this. Thank you so much. Thank you for leaving this. I am so happy. I get a lot of stuff internationally. Thank you from Melbourne from Australia, from B. Sutton. Thank you, mate. All right. This was a super fun uh, episode. It happened. Marvel shipped a crossover way out of order, but you're a kid. You don't care. It was fun. It's always fun. Um, We will... I look forward to talking to you guys next time. I love hanging out with you guys. You can reach me on social media, on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld. Blue check mark says it's really me. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Same thing. Blue check mark, really me. I'm in so many Facebook groups. Um, it, it's ridiculous. You can find me on there. I love talking. Uh, all manner. Uh, I'm into it, man. Collectibles, consumption, reading, authors, art, original art, slabs. Let's do it. Let's talk. Let's let's uh, let's engage. You guys, thank you so much for listening to this show. Catch me on social media. I love talking to you guys. This is the time of the show. You know that you're going to tell me, you're going to confirm that you are going to take care of yourself and you're going to stay safe and we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 